Uh, and now we're going to hear from the viral, and Brianna is going to come. Oh. <laughs> Yay. Hey guys, I'm Brianna. <laughs> um, we're going to be reading from Isaiah 10, which is on the inside of your booklets. Yes. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice, and to rob the poor of my people of their right that widows may be their spoil, and that they may take the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment, in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners, or fall among the slain. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is, still stretched, is stretched out still. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not, uh, but he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders or kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not, uh, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples, and plunder their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand is found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing, or opened the mouth, or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled, like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. <coughs> the remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end, as decreed, in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not uh, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike 
with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a little while, uh, for in a very little while, my fury will come to an end, and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip, as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. Afternoon, guys. It's good to see you here. Uh, if you are joining us for the first time, well, it's been a while. Um, welcome back. Welcome to us. And the um, Bible is a difficult book to understand at times. And if you've never looked at this part of the Bible or you're not familiar with looking at the Old Testament, the earlier part of the Bible, it can be quite confusing. Even for you who've been with us as we've looked at this book of Isaiah, you might think this is a bit more confusing. But we hope to make sense of this passage. But also, as we do this, we're actually going to see something which is gives us insight into how God deals with the world throughout all of history. Because all of history has to deal with what we see in this chapter, all of the world throughout all time has to deal with it. In our recent times, we don't have to think very far of th evil things that happen. It's part of the world that we live in. It's part of the world that's always been there. And so when yet more bombs are dropped on hospitals and civilian areas in Syria again this year, how do you respond? Or... From the tsunami just recently in Indonesia that wiped out whole villages, or a whole village, killing hundreds, how do you respond to that? Many people understandably believe with the, uh, respond with the question, um, how can God be a part of all of this? Whether you're a believer in God or even not, how can God be in all of this? We ask the question because we want to try and make sense of it all, like we do with anything that happens in the world. We want to try and make sense of how does the world work? How does the world fit together? How does something that is so, so evil, so destructive, fit in with our understanding of the world? If you're trying to make sense of it, people will come up with conclusions like perhaps there's a great cosmic struggle between evil and good that's been going on. And so at times the evil wins out, at times the good wins out. Maybe parts of the world the evil wins out, and other parts of the world, such as our own, the good wins out most of the time. Or perhaps people make a conclusion about God that it's not that God is not doing anything, he's not able to do anything. <coughs> or perhaps... He's not actually wanting to do anything about these things that happen. And of course, people will find that asking about God makes no sense at all because, well, we just don't believe in him. <coughs> and the way that can be put, like Robert Ingersoll put many years ago, injustice upon earth renders the justice of heaven impossible. While there is injustice in the world, 
it just goes to show that there is no heaven. There is no God who rules justly from heaven. Of course, wanting to make sense of injustice and evil in the world is natural. It's a natural response that we'd have to, to small things that happen around us that impact us, or big things that happen to us. It's natural. But even that very desire, that questioning, reveals something of our motives. It reveals something of our mixed motives. Because do we ask, what's gone wrong with the world? Do we ask and try and make sense of it all because we wish to help the people in the hospitals that have been affected in Syria? Do we ask it so that we know where we should press the buttons and what levers should we pull on to fix the problem? Do we ask it so that we could perhaps bring comfort to those who've been affected by such bombs or by the tsunami? Do we, do we ask it just for our own comfort? Do we ask it so that we can say, we can explore what might be behind it and go, it fits in with what we're expecting, and so I don't have to worry about this anymore. Or this isn't a brand new outbreak of evil that is going to threaten me. I'm not so worried about it anymore. Or perhaps you just despair at your own lack of outrage as you return to play Candy Crush or whatever it is that is your app of diversion. Um, I don't people still play it. <coughs> I never did, so I'm not clear. Now, the Bible gives us some good answers, some clear answers to this question, and it gives us a different perspective than perhaps we might think perhaps you're not aware of. And in the chapter that we're looking at today, we see who's in control when evil things happen. Uh, surprise, surprise, the answer is God is in control. No surprise there. However, this passage gives us insight into what God's control is like and where we're supposed to see it. Well, before we jump into looking at that passage. I'm going to lead us in prayer. This is God's word to us. Uh, and so if you're somebody who believes that too, then perhaps you'd like to say amen to this prayer to ask God to help us understand. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the word that you've given us in Isaiah. We pray that you might help us to understand it. We pray that you might help us to so understand it so that we can respond rightly. And we pray it. Jesus. Amen. Well, to give you a little bit of the context, Isaiah 10 begins, as we've seen, if you've been with us, speaking to the people of Jerusalem, people of Israel. And now, well, in the past chapters, God's been telling them that they're under judgment, they're under sentence. And here we see, finally, that judgment is actually coming to the people of Israel. Why? Well, pick up there, verse 1. Uh, just Sorry, just so you know, if you've been reading it, this is actually continues on from the previous chapter. It's sort of, yeah, obviously it continues on from the previous chapter, but this chapter begins with the continued thought, so you might want to go and read that 
chapter 9 bit before. But anyway, we pick it up in verse 1. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. Similar as what we've seen, God's action against his own people is because mostly the leaders, but anyone who's in a position of power, been oppressing those who are without ability to stand up for themselves, the poor, the widows, the fatherless. And up until now, God has been saying, repent and change. And the repent, sorry, the message now is, no, repent, but it's too late. It's woe. It's the idea that disaster has come. It's sort of like the, the bullet's in the chamber. That actually, the trigger's been pressed, and the bullet is on its way. And what's the response? Well, verse 3, what will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? Nothing. You're not going to be able to do it. To whom will you flee for help? No one. And where will it leave? And where will you leave your wealth? There, there won't be any. It will be taken away. Nothing remain but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. God's intention that He's declaring to the people for the last time to bring it is to bring ruin upon the people of Israel and Judah because of their rebellion against Him. His just penalty. Well, how is He going to do that? What's His solution? The solution is the nation of Assyria. Assyria is the great rising superpower at the time, off to the north, and is going to be God's tool, God's instrument of judgment against his own people. So verse 5, pick it up from there. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in the hands is my fury. Against the godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and to seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. God is using the Assyrians as his instrument of punishment uh, to arrest Israel's wickedness, to, to judge Israel's wickedness. The Assyrian army is God's anger in action. Where do you see God's anger at that time? It's actually the Assyrian army. is God's anger personified in action. However, Isaiah turns from describing God's action against his, his just action against his people and the destruction at the hands of Assyria to assessing Assyria's motives. Because the Assyrians themselves didn't see themselves as God's instruments of anger, doing the work of the Lord, verse 7. But he, that's the Assyrian king, the Assyrian army leaders, he does not so intend. And his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders or kings? Is not Kalman like Kachinch? Is not Haman like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached into the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images are greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? Assyria does this in full denial of God, not willing servants of God. In fact, his intention is to overthrow the Lord, the God of Jerusalem. And he thinks it should be pretty easy. 
I've conquered all of the other nations around about. In fact, <laughs> Jerusalem, <laughs> the gods of Jerusalem, are pretty pathetic by comparison. They won't be too hard. And so the king of Assyria, in his strength, is blind to the reality that his success is empowered by the very God he thinks that he's about to overthrow. He's assessed by God as arrogant. He is no different to the arrogant leaders of Israel whom he is destroying. And so, verse 12, we go from there. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I've done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures like a bull. I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found, like a nest, the wealth of the peoples, as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken. So I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing or opened a mouth or ever chirped. My strength, my wisdom, my hand. It's like picking up eggs that have just been abandoned. Is God using Assyria? Yes. To punish his people? Yes. Is Assyria guilty of the punishment God is using him to bring? Yes. So, in justice, God is going to bring destruction on Assyria for their own sinful intentions. Verse 15, pick it up there. So, uh, sorry, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the sword <coughs> magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send a wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. Friends, here is a lesson which the Bible teaches us again and again. God stands behind both the good and the evil in the world. God stands not just behind the good in the world, God also stands behind the evil in the world. God is able to bring about his purposes, his righteous purposes, through the wickedness of arrogant leaders, boastful leaders like the king of Assyria, who is doing God's work for him, while still judging such a wicked person for their evil intentions. Last week, we saw there's no aspect of life, no area of life that is outside of God's control. And so no area of life where God can't be trusted. All the intricate details of life. Because God is sovereign in all of creation. God upholds every molecule of creation, every atom, every ounce of energy, every action is upheld by God. That's true. Then every evil action in the world is empowered by God. I mean, it can't be that somebody has an evil intention 
and God says, no, I'm going to whip away the resources for that person to be able to carry out that evil intention. But he will do that and does do that. But the evil that we see is as though some sort of secret source of power has come in and thwarted God and the evil is able to carry out that evil. No, God sustains all of creation, empowers all creation, and even empowers the wicked to do their wickedness. But, under his sovereign control, he's able to bring about his purposes and plans at the same time as being righteous and bringing evildoers to justice. Whether that's the inhabitants of Jerusalem or the army of Assyria. And it's something that the whole Bible teaches. Let me show you a few examples. You might be familiar with a few of these. Back in Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, great stories, fantastic stories, none better than the story of Joseph with all of his brothers. Great brothers, they are. All but one is older than Joseph. They're not great, great brothers at all, because you know, if you know the story, they sell Joseph, their youngest brother, uh, almost youngest brother, apart from Benjamin, into slavery in Egypt. Actually, they were going to kill him at first and then realised they could actually make some money by selling him to slavery, and so they sell him into slavery. He's gone and forgotten, taken off to Egypt by slave traders, and there he finds himself in prison, he finds himself in the service of uh, as a slave and finds himself well, ultimately working his way through to become the second in Egypt many decades later, overseeing the wealth of Egypt as they supply food for the famine that spread throughout the world. The famine that brings the brothers to Egypt for grain. Well, that story is great. You need to go read it for yourself. But eventually... The brothers are reconciled with, with Joseph, who's no longer there. Well, he's still their younger brother, but he's now the second most powerful person perhaps in the world. They're worried. Though that they're reconciled, that he's going to take revenge on them. But what does Joseph say after they've worked through everything? Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I'll provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Were their actions evil? The brothers? Absolutely. Were they the only ones behind their actions? No. God was using their evil for good, says Joseph, to bring about the salvation of many. Indeed. In Isaiah itself, Isaiah 45, as God chooses King Cyrus, as we'll eventually get to, Cyrus, who does not acknowledge God, but is doing God's work for him, God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I'm the Lord who does all these things. The Lord is the one who uses calamity, or well-being to bring about his purposes. Because ultimately we see that in the Lord Jesus. And this is what the apostles, this is just a snippet of the passages, there's many more we can point to. In Acts chapter 4, 
after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected for life, and the message of the apostles of Jesus is going out by the apostles. Here's what they say after they've been persecuted. The apostles and the friends of the apostles praised God, saying, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Who's in control? God's in control. What's the worst possible thing that you could possibly point to that's happened in the world? But the death of the one who is the innocent one, the innocent son of God, who is the king over all the earth, rejected and put to death. But God stands behind it, the action of putting Jesus to death, so that many might be brought to salvation. God stands behind both evil and good. But he stands behind both asymmetrically. Um, I'll give you a book to read, and you can go and read it at some stage. It's a fantastic book by Don Carson. I'm sorry, I don't have it on the sheet here, on the open um, screen. Uh, it's called How Long, O Lord? Where he goes through all these passages and makes this uh, clear that God stands behind both evil and good. But Differently, God stands behind good in a way that he doesn't stand behind evil. God does not make evil or perpetrate evil. God makes all the good and perpetrates good, but he does not make evil or perpetrate evil. He always It's always the actions of another agent, humans, who do evil. But God, in his sovereignty, is able to use that evil to bring about his good. And at the same time, hold the evildoer guilty for their evil. Well, where does that leave us? It's meant to lead us to a greater trust in the Lord. In fact, the Lord that you can lean on. Because that's where Isaiah goes. Pick it up there in verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed. Overflowing with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of the earth. Yes, there will only be a remnant left over. A few people remain, the majority destroyed. It's tempting if you're amongst them to think that all is lost, that we are, we would have been better off to have been done away with the rest. We are the remnant, the survivors. But God says, no, I have plenty. And you need to trust me and lean on the Lord. Because God will bring about the destruction of evil. We won't have a chance to look at it, but 
verse 24 following. God appoints annihilation for the Assyrians, for what they've done. The Lord of hosts will act again against the Assyrians, as he's done against the, and you, when you read it there, the, the, the enemies of the people throughout Israel's history. And so therefore, trust in the Lord. That is, don't be afraid when you see evil approaching. Of course, be afraid when you see evil approaching, it's the natural response. But don't give in to fear. Evil is not going to prevail. The Lord is bringing about destruction of evil in his good time. So trust the Lord. He is trustworthy. And remember, be aware of where God has done that in the past. Says Isaiah here. Gideon, remember Gideon. Remember, remember how God has done that. God can be trusted. And friends, today we can trust God too. Indeed, we can trust God more, even more so. What we heard in Acts 4 there is the climax of, climax of God's triumph over evil, using the wickedness that was directed at him for his greatest defeat of evil. In the, hand, in the death of Jesus, at the hands of evil people, God was bringing about the salvation of the nations. It's captured beautifully in that song, which I'm sure that you know it. I've just got part of the second verse, I think it is, here, Jerusalem. You'll know it well. See the king who made the sun and the moon and shining stars. Let the soldiers hold and nail him down so that he could save them. The soldiers who put Jesus to death are just the pointy end of a great multitude of people opposed to God, carrying out the plans of the nations to overthrow God's appointed one. The evil plans that God uses to open up life and forgiveness to all people. So keep looking to Jesus. That's where we see God dealing with sin in the world. That's where we can make sense of evil in the world. That's where we receive God's mercy. But also learn to respond rightly. Because we do need to respond rightly to evil. Uh, if we were there to see it at the time in, a, in Israel, we probably would and should weep at the evil of the Assyrian destruction. As we contemplate the cross, it's right to weep at the death of the Son of God. But to weep with hope, knowing God's good purposes are being worked out nonetheless. And so with evil we see and experience now, it's right to weep at that. But with hope, knowing God's good purposes. We respond in anger when we see evil. And righteous anger is difficult, but it's right. But we do so with patience, not unleashed anger. Patience, knowing God's good purposes. And we look beyond the evil itself because we look for the Lord 
knowing his good purposes are at work. And we don't despair. While despair may be the thing that presses in upon us, we don't despair, but we trust. Because God wants us to be obviously trusting in Him, but to be useful to the world in times of evil. To actually be able to be people who can respond rightly, but ultimately not in despair, but in trust in the Lord. We are the most useful we can be in this, in occurrences of evil when we shine in trust in the Lord. When we are not given over to despair, when we're not given over to anger, when we're not given over to inaction, not knowing what to do at all. We're enabled to trust such that we can shine the light of Jesus onto those who are despairing, to those who are given to anger, to those who are given to inaction and despair of not knowing what to do. Because we know the Lord Jesus, who actually is God's answer to the evil in the world. And we can deal with things as they come along, as hard as they may be, that evil that impinges upon us. One very brief example, personal example, that I, where I've seen it, it just last week, it was my mother's birthday. Uh, she would have been, I forget now, 70-something. Uh, she, she died from cancer in 1991, so that's some time ago. She was a Christian. She loved the Lord Jesus. But not somebody who was particularly vocal about her faith. Certainly strong conviction. Her battle with cancer changed all of that. In her battle with cancer, she gave up chasing many of the things that she would have chased uh, in the world. Not that she was given to worldly things. But she realised that time was short. She realised that knowing God was actually the sweetest thing there was. And being able to see others come to know him was indeed the best thing that she could ever do. That she lined up all her family uh, to come over for afternoon tea, one afternoon when she was in her final state, uh, and gave them all a copy of, uh, you may not know the name, John Chapman's A Fresh Start, which outlined the gospel and told them very pointedly, face to face, I want you to read this and actually deal with God. And she had great joy in the Lord which I had never seen in quite that way. If you'd asked me, would you rather have your mum back alive or would you rather have that experience that she, for her that she has gone through and the results of that? That's hard to answer, isn't it? But in such an evil thing, God was able to bring it out his goodness and glory to point to the greatness of the Lord Jesus. So may it be with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are deep in control in this world. And in more ways than we perhaps and we certainly understand. Thank you for what you teach us from Isaiah 
and what you are doing with the Assyrian army bringing your justice upon your nation. That ultimately you use evil to bring about your purposes and your will. Help us to keep trusting you when we see evil, when we experience evil, that we may recognise that you are in control for your own good, for your good purposes, that we might be useful to you and be able to shine a light on people for the Lord Jesus and point people to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And we don't have to say, I'm going to leave some prayer down. That's right, James, I knew that. Hi everyone, my name is James, I'm a first year engineering student, and I'm going to continue leading us in prayer. Let's talk to God. Father God, we do thank you that you are in control. We thank you that uh, you are sovereign over all things, all the time. Thanks that that means that uh, we can trust in you, and that um, yeah, we can trust in your good plans for us and for the world. But we also thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for giving us hope for eternal life in him, and for saving us out of our slavery to sin. Thank you for being merciful. Please help us to trust in Jesus in everything that we do. We pray that more people may come to know Him as their King. Please use us, Lord, as Uni Bible Group, in your mission to seek and save the lost. Father, we pray for the students amongst us and known to us who will be graduating university and leaving Uni Bible Group at the end of this semester. Please guide them as they move on to the next step of life. Help them to transition well out of Uni and to keep reading your Word. We pray for any students dealing with uncertainty at this time. We again praise you, God, that you are in control of all things, all the time. We ask that you would comfort and guide these people. Lord, we also pray for our faculty Bible studies. Thank you so much that we have the freedom to open your word on campus and study it together. We pray for uni students and other people around the world who don't have this privilege. Thanks for the things we've been able to learn this semester about doctrine, and from the book of Isaiah. We pray that as semester draws to a close, we might continue to meet together and encourage one another more, and also remember the things that we've learned throughout the semester. Finally, Lord, we pray for Monash Christian Fellowship in Melbourne. We pray for the Wellness Wednesday Outreach Group for Women. Please bring people closer to you through this group. We also pray for the upcoming debate with the Islamic Society. We pray that at this event, the speaker will proclaim the gospel clearly and boldly. We pray that many people will be challenged to read the Bible for themselves and find the truth that is in your word. Thank you, Father, for the many good things you give to us. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.